Hi, welcome to the Fantastic Forecast, episode 655. I'm Dave Elliott. And look, I've got to make this quick. I have choir practice later tonight. In every episode of the Fantastic Forecast, I'll be talking about a different issue of the Fantastic Four, starting with issue one and going all the way until the Fantastic Wheel of Doom tells me to stop. Today is Fantastic Four, volume six, number 20, released this month, March 2020, welcoming party by Dan Slott and Paco Medina. So we start the issue with the two kids, Franklin and Valeria, always a favorite of mine, who have been left at home and seems like perhaps they've been up to no good. Franklin is like, we got this, as they see the spaceship landing containing the rest of the family. The Fantastic Four come out, Reed and Sue, not a particularly warm welcome for the children by the way. They're more interested in introducing the kids to Skye, who they call Johnny's soulmate. And they're like, soulmate? Have you ever been on a dating app and have someone say they're looking for a soulmate? I'm usually like, okay, good luck with that. Franklin asks, what are her powers? Um, she's got wings, you little shit. Wings! Valeria asks, is she going to live here now? And Reed is like, sure, we've got plenty of room. Johnny looks like, oh no, what have I done? By the way, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, Sky and Johnny have nothing in common. They grew up on two different planets. Do they like the same movies? Music? TV shows? Hobbies? No! Ben says he's heading off to see Alicia. Reed confronts the kids and he seems to know that they've had four, no five, parties while they were gone. This is so stupid. Reed may be smart, but he's not a friggin' mind reader. How did he know they had parties? And by the way, who the hell does Franklin and Valeria invite to a party? They don't have any friends. Meanwhile, Johnny asks Skye what she thinks of his planet, which is a very stupid question as well. She reminds him that his headquarters is the only thing that she's seen on the planet so far. And Fantastic Four headquarters is hardly representative of planet Earth. For example, two preteen children throwing elaborate parties on their own. Johnny tells her to make herself at home, and a bird flies by, and the bird's like, Coo! And Sky replies, Hi, I'm new here. Does she think that bird is an intelligent life form? By the way, why is there a bird in Fantastic Four headquarters? Are they on the roof? That's not particularly clear. Johnny heads into his room and checks his messages. There are 66 of them. Fortunately for us, the very first message that we hear comes from Wyatt Wingfoot, which is the most important message. You know, that never happens to me. When I check my messages, the most important one is always in the middle. It's like, Hi David, this is your mother. I'm with the library. We're calling about an overdue book. Hi, I'm calling from the Johnson campaign. Hello. I'm calling to see if you need prescriptions. Hi, this is your doctor's office. It's Friday afternoon. Please call us Monday morning. We have your results back. This is your cable company. We have an exciting offer. Anyway, Wyatt's message is, Can you hear me? The Kiwazi reservation is under attack. I repeat, we're under... And then Johnny gets two more messages from Wyatt that aren't so dramatic. But he's still going to Oklahoma to check it out. Sue comes in and asks Johnny where he's off to, and he tells her, and he's going without Sky. Johnny's like, oh, she'll be fine here. 
I do find it interesting that Johnny is so blasé about Skye. Normally, he's the one who falls in love at first sight and completely loses his shit. Later, Johnny and Sue come out and Skye is surrounded by pigeons. And ooh, she's made new friends. She says, These noble creatures have already accepted me as one of their own. Johnny is disgusted. He's like, They're pigeons! They're basically rats with wings. Oh, poor Johnny. All these amazing women that he's dated, now he's stuck with the pigeon lady as his soulmate. Sue talks him into going to see Wyatt together. So Johnny and Skye get into one of the flying cars and they take off. Sue says to herself that this should be an end to all this soulmate nonsense. Ben, meanwhile, heads down to Alicia's studio and fills her in on what's been going on. That they learned that the Fantastic Four getting their powers were caused by some dude on the planet Spire and not by Reed's own incompetence and that Johnny has met and came back with his soulmate. Alicia asks, I wonder how long that'll last. Alicia, probably not as long as Johnny thought he was married to you. So four hours later, they land in Oklahoma. Wyatt comes over to greet him. Johnny introduces Skye by her real name, Kayla. Did we know that yet? Huh. He awkwardly calls her his soulmate, and Wyatt is like, oh, like Crystal. Johnny says no. And Wyatt is like, oh, like Princess Perla. And Johnny says no. Like Zyja from Battleworld. And Johnny says no. It is different that Johnny is not as much into her as she is into him. By the way, I've never dated anyone with wings, but wouldn't, you know, sexy time be a little awkward with those things flapping around? The only thing that should be flapping around is my- Wyatt wonders where the rest of the team is. Johnny is kind of useless without the others. Johnny's purpose on the team is to rush in first, get his ass kicked, and come back and say, my flames are useless, and then it's up to the other three members of the team to actually do anything. Skye says that she can help. She was a member of the Unparalleled. Oh great, she's got wings. Wyatt explains they're dealing with the Mole Man, and he says, they're coming to attack, attack Kiwazi and kidnap the newest members of our tribe. First of all, why attack the one Native American tribe where the head of the tribe is close friends with the Fantastic Four? Second of all, the newest members of the tribe? Aren't the newest members of the tribe, you know, babies? Well, no, not in this case. We see the four newest members of the tribe of the Kiwazi and those are four yellow moloids that we saw last issue. Johnny is very surprised. And Skye is surprised, but he's surprised. She's got to be completely useless. She doesn't know who the Mole Man is, what a moloid is, what a Native American is. She doesn't know shit. Anyway, the explanation for why the moloids are in the tribe is that they've been living under the land for longer than the Kiwazi have been living on it. And when the oil drilling started, it started to destroy the caves underneath it, which is when they attacked. But they worked out their differences, and they ended up letting the Moloids join the tribe. Everything seems dandy, until Mole Man showed up complaining about his Moloids being up on the surface. They are Mole Man's servants, and he wants them to turn around and go back into Mole Man's hole in the ground. Johnny is like, you really could have used a Fantastic Four's help. And Wyatt is like, 
Oh, uh, well, yeah, that's what I was saying. Anyway, Johnny says the rest of the Fantastic Four can be there in two hours. And suddenly, Wyatt says, there's no time to wait. He opens up the trunk of Johnny's flying car. He pulls out a giant-sized Liefeldian gun. The Native Americans and the Subterraneans all have pitchforks and shovels. It looks like an angry mob from 1920. One lady with some kind of high-tech radar device or something, she says that she detects a large mass burying the subterranean. So Johnny flames on and everyone else is ready. Next, Moman pops up out of the ground riding a T-Rex dinosaur. He's got a few T-Rex dinosaurs. Why does Moman have T-Rexes? I thought all his animals were, you know, subterranean animals. Wyatt tells Moman that he is not welcomed on Kiwazi land. Moman tells the Human Torch and his little friends to leave. None of his business. I'm not sure who his little friends are. The Native Americans? Moman says that this is between him and his deceitful little dirt diggers. Oh, the Moloids are the dirt diggers. Sky attacks one of the T-Rexes with a sonic scream. Johnny complains about Sky being impulsive. Huh. He should be complaining about the fact that he's dating a chick with a sonic scream. Uh, that could be a problem later. Maybe not for Johnny. He gets swatted to the ground by one of the T-Rex's tails. And she says that the T-Rex is annoyed. A local woman says, What are you talking about? They're not saying anything. Huh. All Sky said was the T-Rex was annoyed. She didn't say that the T-Rex said anything. However, Sky answers, But they are. Can't you hear them? They immediately figure that Sky can hear dinosaurs talk because they eventually evolved into birds, and she could talk to birds. Odd that Slot subscribes to this theory, but the T-Rex, it's not drawn with feathers. Johnny tries to shoot the dinosaurs with flames, and guess what? No effect! The dinosaur also bites the big gun out of Wyatt's hand. And then Mole Man says that everyone must bow before him. It's a good thing that Mike Pence isn't there. He'd be like, yes, I will bow before you, oh great leader. You're the best subterranean leader ever. Sky flies over and starts chatting with the dinosaur, which is massively stupid. So Slot decided, A, Sky could talk to birds. And B, he gave Mole Man some dinosaurs, so C, Sky could talk to the dinosaurs. Ugh, quite a stretch. So Sky tells the dinosaurs about the plight of the Kiwazi people, and surprisingly, they are sympathetic to their cause. Oh yeah, they, these T-Rexes, they have a heart of gold. They decide to stop helping Mole Man. Meanwhile, back in New York, Reed, Sue, and the kids are up on, up on the roof putting up lights and creating a nice little outdoor space. This is much nicer than the roof of the Baxter building, that's for sure. They mention that they're going to have a little party for their new house guest, Sky. Sue mentions that it seems a little too soon for Johnny to be living with this girl. Really? You think? Meeting someone from another planet is like meeting someone from Craigslist. You want to take it very, very slow and be very, very careful. Just then, as if on cue, Johnny and Sky arrive in the flying car. Wait! Was that it? The end of the Bowman story? I can't believe it. So at their little rooftop welcome to Earth party, Johnny and Sky fill everyone in on what happened back in o Oklahoma. We learn that Moman agreed to let the Moloids stay with the Kiwazi tribe. Why? They say something about the Moman being embarrassed 
by the dinosaurs and making a deal never to talk about it again, which is a deal that Johnny and Skye are now breaking. This gets Skye talking about how different Earth is, and she concludes that she really needs to get her own place. Ben says, that could cost a lot of money, and Skye is like, what's money? Ha! She's already adjusting to life as the girlfriend of a New York City millionaire. Alicia hands Skye the keys to her place and says, Ever since I moved in with Ben, I haven't had much a need for my apartment here. Wait, what? I thought the Fantastic Four were living in Alicia's place. Alicia has some other place? Ben and Reed have a little chat, with Ben pulling out an old bottle of champagne that he was going to use to christen the original Marvel 1 rocket all those years ago, but he never got the chance because they stole the rocket in the middle of the night. No, it's not really a good idea to break a bottle of wine over the bow of your spaceship before launching into space anyway. Didn't they do that with the Challenger? So, Ben apologizes to Reed for being mad at him all those years ago over those crappy shields. It wasn't Reed's fault after all. At least, not until this retcon is retconned. Reed still feels like it's his fault for putting them in that situation in the first place. They make a toast, and the issue ends with Reed thinking to himself, I keep sending all of us, my family, out there into God knows what. Well, no more! From now on, I will be prepared for every eventuality. For my wife, for my children. You and Johnny, I swear I'll keep you safe, no matter what it takes. The end. Anyway, what happens in the next issue? Reed, trying to get more power to save his wife and family, turns to the dark side of the force? I don't know. So that's the end of the issue, and man, what a dumb story. Why have the four subterraneans decide to live on Wyatt Wingfoot's reservation? Billions of people in the world, they gotta live with Johnny Storm's best friend? What a coincidence of major proportions. And why the hell does Mole Man have dinosaurs? He's not the king of the savage land, he's the king of the subterranean world. And last I checked, dinosaurs were not a subterranean animal. They live on land, right? Am I crazy? They lived on land? I've seen Jurassic Park. They live on land. Mole Man, he has crazy subterranean animals, not dinosaurs. You can definitely tell how this story was reversed engineered, with Slot deciding first that Skye would save the day by using her powers to talk to birds. But which Fantastic Four villain controls birds? And are birds even scary? Well, not normally, unless they're getting chased by a Canadian goose for getting close to a to baby geese. Now that is some scary shit. Mole Man is the only FF villain that controls animals that I know of. But he certainly doesn't control birds. But shit, Slot remembered that dinosaurs may have evolved from birds. He saw Jurassic Park too. And then the Mole Man has a group of T-Rexes to control and just so Skye could talk to the dinosaurs and save the day. Wouldn't it have made more sense for to have a villain that controls giant killer birds and have them attack the reservation? He could be working for a evil oil corporation that wants to take their land. Or, even better, he could be working for an evil US president who wants to take their land. Okay, maybe that's too realistic. So on a scale of 1 to 4, I give this story a... 2. I do like the art by Paco Medina, which keeps this issue from being a complete disaster. So that takes me to the following.
Hi, welcome to Fantastic Forecast, episode 655, part 2. Today I'll be talking about Invisible Woman, issues 1 and 2, published in July and August 2019 by writer Mark Wade and artist Mattia D. Lulis. And so last month's spin of the Fantastic Wheel of Doom gave us Invisible Woman issues 1 and 2. Now I read these last year and I was like, what the what? The tone of this comic is so completely different than the Fantastic Four. The FF is this weird combination of superheroes slash sci-fi and books like Marvel 2-in-1 and Strange Tales with the Human Torch, they, never, they didn't stray too far from what the Fantastic Four book is. But this Invisible Woman miniseries, it's so tonally different. Like, it's such a complete departure from anything we've ever seen the Fantastic Four uh, do before. It's just kind of like a... it's like a spy story. The first issue starts uh, the way any Cold War movie from the 1980s would start. On a bridge in Europe. The border between Bazistan and Hungary. One of them is a real country, the other is a fake made up for this comic. Why make up one? I don't understand. Plus, they're going into Hungary. They're going into the real country. What the hell is... Why do they just make up Bazistan? It mentions that the, uh, the story takes place 10 years ago. You know, <laughs> in 2009... The height of the Cold War. People are crossing a bridge guarded by three dudes with machine guns. They're guarding like this chain link fence with razor wire on top of it. And between the two sides of the fence, there's a an opening big enough for people to walk through. There's no door on the fence. So an armed guard must be there at all times. Which makes me wonder why there's barbed wire on top of the fence. Who's climbing the fence? When an armed guard is right there, you can't climb the fence. And then if an armed guard is if an armed guard isn't there, you're not gonna climb the fence either because there's a big hole there. Big enough for you to walk through. So people are passing through, showing their passports. It's cold and snowing. A man in a red coat and a woman in a blue coat are in line. They're getting closer and closer to the guards, and they seem nervous. There's a caption that says Operation Tempest. Yeah, Operation Tempest. A quick Google search shows that Operation Tempest was a series of anti-Nazi uprising conducted to by the Polish Home Army, the dominant force in the Polish resistance. So, is this a World War II story now? 2009, the height of World War II. My mind is blown. Maybe Mark Way just doesn't have access to Google. Actually, I misspoke. They're not showing their passports. They're showing... They're papers. What kind of border is this? Shouldn't they be showing their passports? Who just shows papers? No passports, just papers? What kind of papers do you show in lieu of a passport? The guy gets up to the guard and he says, he's warm. I'll have what he's having. One guard turns to the other, how much have you had? And the other guard is like, I'm fine. 
<laughs> that was the worst impression of a drunk person ever. I thought he was giving some secret passcode, but he's just pointing out that that guard is actually drunk. The woman hands her papers to the guard, who says, What's the hurry? The weather is the same in Hungary as it is here. Are these Hungarian guards keeping people out of Hungary? Or are they Balzerian guards keeping people in? I don't know. The drunk guard is told to go lie down, and when he starts walking away, he runs into something like a big snowball? It's hard to tell. But then, on the ground is a woman turning visible, which is Sue Richards, I assume, which was incorrect. With the main guard distracted, the man in the red coat punches a guard. He takes his machine gun and he guns him down, and then he guns down the other guard, I guess, it looks like, while the lady in the blue coat helps the drunk guard up and helps him across the bridge with the other guy telling them to move on. And then the other two guards are back up, firing guns at him. Wait, the guy in the blue coat was standing like just a few feet away, blasting away with a machine gun. He missed? What is he, a Star Wars stormtrooper? Well, the guards are missing too because the shots are being blocked by the woman in the blue coat. She has black hair, but she's blocking us with what appears to be a force field. You know what? I think it might be Alicia Masters in a rip, you know. You know what? I think it might be Alicia Masters in a black wig. Now, was the guy in the red coat gunned down too? Oh, uh, the woman and the drunk guard jump off the bridge and they land on the ice covering the river below, which doesn't particularly strike me as a good idea. They both turn invisible as they walk over to the land. They try to pass another armed guard who can see them because the snow is making an outline of them. Sue pulls out a gun and the drunk guy is telling her to shoot. Instead, she just makes his gun invisible. He freaks out and they move on. He pulls out another gun, but the guy in the red coat shows up and he whacks him on the head. How did he survive, by the way? There's a lot of gunfire close range. No one's getting hit. The three of them run off, protected by a force field. I guess this woman is Sue Richards? But who was the other woman who got knocked to the ground earlier and turned visible when she was invisible? I don't know. Sue calls the guy in the red coat, Squarejaw, and he refers to her as Stormy. They arrive at a black back in a black SUV. They get inside and we see that it's being driven by Nick Fury. You know, the real Nick Fury. The one that looks like David Hasselhoff. So later, with the mission over, whatever that mission was, it makes no sense. What were they doing? They get back to New York City. They get off a private jet. Sue, still in her wig. Why did she keep that on the entire flight home? She's talking with Squarejaw, her partner on the mission, who tells her that one day she's going to have to take that shot. This seems to imply that Sue has been going on other spy missions. Since when has Sue been working as a spy for the US government? This seems to come like far, 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 far out of left field. This just doesn't seem like something that Sue would ever do. The guy asks Sue to help, but she says she's busy with her other job and she pulls off her coat and wig and reveals herself in her Fantastic Four uniform form, which is her early Jack Kirby version. I think 10 years ago puts this story back during the original Lee Kirby run. Oh, it hurts my head to think of this sliding timescale of the Marvel Universe. I guess the Fantastic Four got their powers like in this century. 
we jump to the present, but and then we get a little bunch. Sue with Franklin with his blue hair. So this is very current. There's a there's one with Reed and then Johnny and Ben, and we end up with her walking in the park alone. She gets a call on her phone and immediately heads to CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia for another spy mission. Are we supposed to believe that she's been doing these spy missions the entire time? Oh, such bullshit. The CIA CIA guy tells Sue that what he's telling her is top secret. She can't even tell her family. He mentions how three weeks ago, six American college students were unjustly kidnapped and sentenced to life imprisonment by the Moravian government. Why is that top secret? And meanwhile, another agent, Aiden Tintrich, has gone missing, perhaps captured and being tortured. And this is the guy that Sue was working with at the beginning of the issue, 10 years earlier. As he was captured, he got out a coded message that said, Stormy. I assume he was referring to Sue Richards and not the mascot for the Carolina Hurricanes, even though that pig is pretty good in a fight. Sue says she hasn't heard from Aiden in years, and she wants to join the search. CIA guy says, absolutely not. He says it's too risky for international relations to attempt to rescue Aiden or the six college students. He says to her, don't even think about trying to rescue Aiden Tintretch. That's a horrible name. Horrible, horrible name. Well, why did he call her there in the first place? Oh, I think he told her because he wants her to make, he wants her to rescue Tintretch. They should have showed him like winking as he said not to rescue Tintretch. But he really does want her to rescue him. He just can't say it. For some reason, there's a close-up of her ass. Uh, I think it's like an invisible file stuffed under her shirt that she's doing you know, over her butt. If it is invisible, I'm not sure why she has to hide it under her shirt because, you know, it's invisible. So later, Sue is getting her plane ready. She texts Reed an excuse. Oh wait, they have smartphones. They can text each other, yet they still use a flare gun to signal each other. What's up with these people? Nick Fury shows up and says that he can't, that she can't go on this mission. She says, you can't stop me. Nick replies, Yeah, yes I can. And he reaches into his coat and he pulls out a file, a fake passport, and other stuff to help her on this mission. Wait, what? Why did he immediately go from, you can't go on this mission, to, I'm going to help you out with this mission? Nick Fury, who, this isn't the real Nick Fury now, it's the Samuel L. Jackson Nick Fury. I guess, what is he, like, Nick Fury Jr.? Nick says... It's a kill or be killed situation. It's a kill or kill be. It's a kill or kill be. It's a kill or be killed mission. Wait, is Nick Jr. not aware of what Sue's powers are? Seems funny to call him Nick Jr. By the way, she gets in and flies to the most dangerous city on Earth. No, not Detroit. It's Madripoor, which is, I guess, pretty much Hong Kong. If Hong Kong were dangerous. Man, I haven't seen Madripoor since Wolverine hung out there in the 1980s. She gets attacked by two dudes in ski masks and tank tops. I like the fact that they put them in tank tops. 
just to let the reader know that Sue did not land in a ski resort. They also have knives, but they're easily beaten by Sue. Sue, by the way, is wearing her Fantastic Four uniform, so it's not like they don't know who she is and the fact that she was going to kick their asses, they should have just turned and ran. She goes over to this nearby dock and Black Widow is sitting there and she says, You're here. Good. I've been expecting you. Uh-oh. Two women in the same scene together. Oh, I can hear the Comicscape people complaining already. Well, that's the end of the issue. The end of issue one. On to issue two. Same creative team. The issue starts eight years earlier with another mission with Sue and Aiden. I sure hope it's more exciting than their previous mission of walking across a pedestrian bridge. They're in Barcelona, Spain, and they're lurking around the city watching two guys make a secret exchange of a briefcase. Aiden runs, he grabs one of the guys, and he says, it's Sergei Kasilov, a KGB assassin. Ah, uh, eight years ago, 2011, the height of KGB activity. The other guy with the briefcase case gets hit with something invisible and drops the case. Sue calls Nick Fury, tells him who they captured, and later Sue and Aiden are in a coffee shop talking about how Aiden likes Irish women. And Sue's like, I don't miss being single. Was she ever single? She's been Reed's girlfriend ever since she was a teenager. Aiden says he couldn't do his job if he had a wife and family back home to divide his attention. <sighs> I feel the same way about podcasting. I can't be married and have kids when I'm totally focusing on creating the best podcast in the world. They make a toast to the happy and tragic single life of Aiden Tintreach. So that's the end of another exciting spy mission, capturing a guy with a briefcase. So back in the present, where Sue is running across Black Widow, they're going into town looking for someone named Chang Dao. They're in Majipur. And the trail leads them to a place called Brass Monkey Saloon. Sue says, The Brass Monkey, huh? I'm surprised it's still standing after the Peregrine affair. And Black Widow is like, The Peregrine? That was you! Oh, this is also stupid. Now, Sue suddenly has this active long-running spy career that we've never heard anything about ever before and frankly it just doesn't make any sense it doesn't seem in character for her to be doing this at all and how the hell does she sneak off and do this she has a husband and two kids does she tell them hey i've got a spy mission and then wouldn't reed be like i'm coming with you oh it doesn't make any sense so the two of them head into the Brass Monkey, and you know what they say about the Brass Monkey. You got this dance that's more than real. Drink at Brass Monkey, that's how you feel. You put your left leg down and your right leg up, tilt your head back till you finish the cup. So they head inside, Black Widow orders two vodka limes, neat. That seems awfully rude, like, not something Sue would want to drink, and it's not. Natasha reveals that phrase was a secret code that they want to see. Chan Dao. The barkeep leads them to a back room where Chan Dao is happy to meet them. He's got long stringy black hair and he's dressed like the kingpin, but not fat, you know, white suit, even a similar cane. He does make Sue very uncomfortable. He kind of reminds me of Tommy Wiseau from The Room. And by the way, it just occurred to me, isn't um, 
ordering two vodka limes, neat, a really terrible, terrible secret code. What if someone comes in and actually orders two vodka limes, neat, for real? tells him they're looking for Aiden Tent Treach. Shang Dao says he might know where Aiden is, but first, he must have a drinking contest with Sue. Oh, where did this guy learn how to be a criminal? A college fraternity? And even worse, Sue's competition is a big Asian guy the size of Kingpin, wearing a wife beater, still. He starts drinking away. It seems pretty obvious what Shu should do. It seems pretty obvious what Sue should do. What Sue should do. What Sue should do. Drink the whiskey, turn it invisible in her mouth, and spit it out. So they start trading shots. Pretty soon, Sue has a stack of 17 empty glasses. At this point, her opponent passes out and falls to the floor. And then Chang Dao reveals that dude is dead. He poisoned the whiskey. And he calls in these three Asian guys with swords, all three very large, with wife beaters. Not a, not a very professional look, if you ask me. We get a look at Sue's empty glasses, which are not really empty. We can see that, yeah, she did spit out the whiskey, turn them invisible, spit them out, and the glasses are still full. Sue uses a force field to knock the three fat dudes with swords backwards. Natasha grabs Chan Dao and demands to know what's going on. He said he was told he had to kill the person who came looking for Tentreach. And Natasha asks, who? And before he can say, he gets shot in the head. It came through the window. We see a guy on a motorcycle speeding away. So Natasha and Sue, Sue go after him. He shoots at them, but you know, force fields. Kinda makes this easy for Sue, don't you think? So Sue says that the crowds are making it hard to throw a blockade down. Why not just surround them in a force bubble? She is, she is so powerful, this kind of story doesn't work. She could easily stop him with anything at any time. What she does do is she puts up a ramp, a, a ramp, and he goes flying through the air on his motorcycle. What, she couldn't just put up a barrier, but a big giant ramp? Oh yeah, that's fine in a crowd of people. He jumps off the motorcycle and through an open window. But Sue can turn the walls invisible and she looks and she sees exactly where he's running inside. You know, this is actually a cool two-page spread of the building and you see various invisible spots and the man running through the building. They follow him out to a car. Natasha jumps on the hood. The car hits a pole and Natasha wisely jumps off before it hits the pole. And then Natasha takes the bloody body of the driver out of the car and says that the assassin killed him too. What assassin? I thought he was the assassin. This is like a real Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby situation. In the car, Black Widow finds a dossier, of course a dossier, on Agent Tentreach. But she says most of it doesn't look very promising. Let me guess, no pee party video? The one thing she does find interesting, a couple of photos of a woman. Natasha says it's Aiden's wife of 15 years. You know, based on their conversations in the flashbacks, Sue did not know he was married. Yeah, big deal. So she must feel stupid giving him relation advice and stuff. And so that is the first two issues of The Invisible Woman. Like I said, such a weird solo comic for Sue. 
I don't like retconning to begin with, and retconning that Sue has been working as a government spy part-time all these years is just too hard to believe. Not to mention the story itself, which seems to be moving as slow as molasses. There was three scenes in issue two, the flashback, the scene at the brass monkey, and the chase of the motorcycle guy. And the art bugs me too, I was having a hard time putting my finger on it, but then looking at it, it's the backgrounds. Instead of drawing backgrounds in most of the panels, the backgrounds are just blurry co colors, like we're looking at a camera where the, the background is out of focus. But this is not a camera, it's a comic book. The, the backgrounds don't need, need to be out of focus. There's a lot of blank nothing backgrounds too, like the room with a drinking contest. The only thing in that room seems to be a table and a couple of chairs. Draw some backgrounds, you lazy bastard. Ugh. This Invisible Woman comic. <laughs> I do not think it's very good. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show. The spin of the wheel. The third spin of the Fantastic Wheel of Doom. So here's the 12 items on the wheel this month. Number one, issues one and two of Fantastic Four. World's Greatest Comic Magazine, 12-issue miniseries from 2001-2002. Second thing on the list, Fantastic Four Secret Invasion issues 1, 2, and 3, a miniseries that ties into the big Secret Invasion crossover. Number 3, issues 1 and 2 of Super Villain Team Up, a short-lived series from the 1970s featuring Doctor Doom. Number 4 on the list, it's... Challengers of the Fantastic, a Marvel DC amalgam book from 1997 that combines the Challengers of the Unknown with the Fantastic Four. Number five on the list, another Marvel DC book. It's Fantastic Four Superman, which is like a 64-page graphic novel, I think. Number six, it's issues three four, and five of the Invisible Woman miniseries. Number seven, it's Fantastic Four X-Men issues one and two of a four-issue miniseries from 1987. Number eight, the top ten hottest Fantastic Four villains, where I'll be ranking what I think are the ten most attractive Fantastic Four villains of all time. That is so stupid. Number nine, Episode 1 of the Fantastic Four radio show from the early 1970s. Actually, not episode 1. Well, maybe episode 1. It features the voices of Stanley and Bill Murray. Number 10 on the list. It is a review of Marvel 2-in-1. I'll go to a random number generator, pick a number between 1 and 100, and whatever number it selects, that's the issue of Marvel 2-in-1 I'll do. Number 11 on the list, it's Fantastic Four, a random issue. If I land on this, I'll stick 635 numbers into a random number generator and see what comes up. Number 12, and for this, it's the last Fantastic Four story from 2007 by Stan Lee and John Romita Jr. If I, if I land on this, it will be the last Fantastic Four story ever do on this podcast, meaning that this podcast will come to an end. These are, as I always say, very high stakes. The future of this podcast is on the line here. If I land there, it's the last episode is the final episode. 
So here we are. It's time to spin the wheel once again. And I tap on it to spin. And away it goes. We've got a radio random at last FF story. Oh, Invisible Woman again? Holy crap. It came so close. Yeah, we have a winner. Invisible Woman, three, four, and five. Uh, I can't believe these wheel spins. First time I land on a random issue of the Fantastic Four and end up with my least favorite issue of the series. And now, for the second month in a row, I come so, so close to landing on Last Fantastic Four story. Oh, but no, I ended up with Invisible Woman instead for the second month in a row, which is pretty crazy. I was expecting the entire miniseries would be split up more, like issues 1 and 2 in 2020, and I might not get to issues 3, 4, and 5 until like another year or two. But nope, I'm doing them in the very next episode. So that's coming up next time, Invisible Woman 3, 4, and 5, and Fantastic Four Volume 6, number 21. Maybe. I don't even know if Marvel's going to publish that next month. Or the month after that. If not, I may just do uh, some special episodes until the world returns to normal. If you have any questions about the Invisible Woman, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. You can download episodes at iTunes or find them all at www.podcastff.podbean.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. I would have stayed at home Cause I was doing better alone But when you said